Welcome to the Daily Bulletin from Red Star Radio, covering the latest from the Ukraine war and associated political and economic fallout. The term fallout, of course, is not meant to be a play on the current dirty bomb story, but more on that later. We'll start off today, as we always do, with a look over the latest from the various front lines across eastern Ukraine and southwestern Russia. Now, according to a briefing given today by the Russian Ministry of Defense, there has been several pieces of action along the still rather long front line. In the Kupiansk direction, the armed forces of Ukraine launched an attack with one battalion tactical group around the town of Kuzmovka. And the Ukrainian forces were repelled with what the Russians are claiming are heavy losses. There are, of course, no confirmatory statements or even denials from the armed forces of Ukraine on this. The Russians are claiming, though, that in this attack, the Ukrainians lost 30 men killed, uh, three armored vehicles and two pickup trucks. And further on, on the front line, there was more action near Krasnyliman, with the Russians claiming 120 uh, armed forces of Ukraine killed in action, three tanks and one armoured personnel carrier. And in the Nikolayev Krivoy Rog direction, two uh, Ukrainian armed forces, company tactical groups, carried out an attack on Russian forces, which was again repelled, with 130 Ukrainian armed forces killed, three tanks destroyed, and one armoured fighting vehicle also destroyed. And this is uh, going along with the bigger stories, of course, which are that there continues to be heavy fighting around Bakhmut between the uh, Russian armed forces and the Wagner group and the Ukrainian defenders. Ukrainians tried to launch a fake out today, claiming that they'd advanced and captured some um, high-tech Russian weaponry. Turns out the whole thing was cooked up in the Ukrainian fake studio. So the fighting there continues. Uh, the Wagner group are trying to uh, dislodge Ukrainians from some of the last defensive points outside of the city center. And so the slow advance there by the Russian forces continues. In the Kherson direction, there remains relative quiet, though, of course, the Ukrainians do apparently send one uh, small armored column towards the Russian front line every day, which gets blown up and repulsed. And this apparently did happen again today. But as I said yesterday, it seems that the story that the Ukrainians and the Western media were running with, that the Russians were preparing to abandon Kherson, this seems to be uh, an example of fake news. As I said yesterday, there is now ample evidence uh, from Kherson city of the Russians digging in, building extensive fortifications around their front line down there, and they seem to be digging fortifications all the way across the front line now, in that they are uh, building up tank traps and things like that. We've seen uh, video and footage being shot by Wagner troops as well of them uh, digging uh, up um, earth to put in tank traps and other defenses. So it seems that in, in most of the areas where the Russians are sitting at the moment, they are digging in and building up their defenses because it seems that it's still going to be a number of weeks before they are ready to move in force and therefore they are looking it would seem to stick where they are for now and not carry out any further retreats unless they absolutely have to it would seem that the estimates around when the heavier blow will come from the russians seem to be that the more conservative end of those estimates were correct which was that it would be late november early december so we're looking at another still four, possibly five, maybe even six weeks before the Russians are ready to move in force. And up until then, the armed forces of Ukraine 
are trying to find some way to punch through. Uh, still, there remains a lot of talk about a, a Ukrainian serious attempt to drive at the Kherson front line. But given that the Russians are digging in there and that the lightly armed troops that were guarding the Kherson front line, which were Russian paratroopers and uh, Rosgardia troops from Chechnya, have been replaced by more heavily armoured regular Russian forces, then it would seem that they are prepared to fight it out on the Kherson front line. And whether the Ukrainians still want to go for an assault down there, who knows? I mean, the Ukrainian political leadership has shown uh, scant regard for the lives of its men so far whether they will follow what are apparently instructions from certain elements in washington that they have to carry out an assault down there before the midterms who knows uh, maybe the number of forces and the amount of fortifications that the russians have built down there are simply too big to consider it as of yet but the situation remains rather fluid there so keep an eye on it uh, there are bound to be developments of some kind in the near future even if it's just to confirm that there is no Ukrainian assault materializing. So the biggest stories today uh, weren't actually from the battlefields themselves. That remains almost unchanged from yesterday, other than some small advances by the Russian forces um, in the Bakhmut area. And so the bigger stories came from the political and the economic field. On the political field, uh, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, um, organized his uh, new uh, group to uh, oversee the progress of the special military operation the war in reality they're still insisting on calling it an smo but it's a war and so putin um, who's not formally a part of this uh, oversight group or stavka as the russians are now calling it or as the russian commentators are calling it and this is a committee which, uh, I've said, as I've said previously, is meant to coordinate all the different strands of the war, uh, the economic side of it, including the uh, production of war materials, the military side, uh, the diplomatic side, the security side, all being brought together under one umbrella. And this was addressed by Putin today, who said that he expected the um, economic plan to be uh, ready uh, ASAP. Apparently, it was meant to be ready for today, but isn't quite ready. That uh, production of war material needs to be picked up. That there needs to be um, further work on overcoming the problems of the mobilization, which have largely been resolved. If you uh, read the reports in Russian media, and uh, Mikhail Mishutin, the uh, Russian Prime Minister, who is actually chairing this committee, said that the hotline they'd set up to field problems from mobilized men had initially had a few a lot of big hits on it in terms of numbers calling in but this was now dialing down as the mobilization process became more efficient so what essentially this committee is you know it is moving towards is um having a semi-command position with regard to the russian economy now if you've read anything about the Russian economy prior to this year, you'll know that there is a heavy role for the Russian state within it. And this takes the form of Russian state control over the big oil and gas companies like Gazprom and the associated banks that are run by Gazprom and the other big energy companies. So a lot of the biggest sectors of the Russian economy are either completely state-owned or they are nominally private, but take their direction from the state. So there's already extensive command over the energy sector. There is already, of course, the um, con a 
very extensive state control over the military-industrial complex in Russia, and con state control over the banking system is much more extensive than it is uh, in the Western capitalist world. And so a system of quite strong state control already existed in large areas of the Russian economy. This committee looks set to extend that further and by actually moving production of war materials onto a full war footing. And that is essentially what Putin was calling for today. And it's an interesting development, given that one of the things that was animating the early parts of the special military operation was that Putin and the rest of the Russian leaders were very concerned not to let the, obviously, the sanctions cripple the Russian economy. Now that they've got over that and they have actually overcome the initial hit that the sanctions did have on the economy, they are now in a position where the Russian uh, economy lo looks like it is going back to the levels of production that were seen in 2021 at the very least, where the International Monetary Fund's recent report concedes that the Russian economy looks set to start growing again. They're now feeling in that they are in a position economically and politically with the support that they have for the, for the war amongst the wider Russian population. They now feel that they can actually take uh, a much more commanding role within the economy in terms of actually directing whole sectors to produce for the war more so than they were already and this is necessary given the scale of war that they are now engaged in had the initial plan for the special military operation worked and had the ukrainians signed that deal back in march and had the europeans british and americans not vetoed that deal then we would obviously be in a different situation there would have been no need for this but when you roll into a situation where you're needing to mobilize hundreds of thousands of men, needing to equip them, needing to put them in a situation where they can carry out a war, which now looks set to try and have the ultimate defeat collapse and then take over of the bulk of Ukraine as its target, then that requires a whole different level of military industrial production which is what it seems that this committee is essentially reorganizing certain aspects of the economy towards doing. And this is what happens in every country which runs a war which lasts for more than a few weeks. Now, the Americans haven't had to do anything like that because they haven't had to fight a major war of any kind for so many decades. Even the Vietnam War at its height, um, even though it did have distorting impacts on the civilian economy, it didn't necessitate the kind of command economy approach that the Russians are needing to take now. Uh, but back in, of course, World War II, the British had to adopt a command economy. Uh, the Americans had to as well to make sure that war production figures were kept up because otherwise there was a tendency of the private owners of the uh, companies to fall back and not fulfill their quotas. And this took a lot of effort on behalf of the British state in particular to make sure that the companies behaved themselves essentially and lived up to their uh, promises to deliver on war material. And this is essentially what the Russian state is having to do now. They can no longer be in a situation, and Putin himself made this clear, where things weren't delivered on time and with the right uh, amount of the order made by the state or with inferior quality, that this is now something essentially that the state needs to direct um, much more heavily than it has done previously. And this is in line with the kind of war the Russians will now be fighting from December onwards or late November, early December onwards, which is much more a full-on 
war military campaign that looks much more like a uh, conventional war than the special military operation they had in mind. So an interesting development there. Keep an eye on um, the official Russian news sources. They they quickly report when this committee meets, and even though, of course, you won't be getting the full story, it'll be interesting to see what they publicly release from this committee. So other things that have developed uh, around the last 24 hours. The Biden administration has refused to transfer the Patriot missile system to Ukraine. The Patriot missile system, if you're not aware of it, is the most advanced American air defense system. Uh, it's what they sold the Saudis, interestingly enough, though. If you believe the uh, Russian commentators, it's not as good as um, either the advanced versions of the S-300 or the S-400. And interestingly enough, the version that the Americans gave to the Saudis or sold to the Saudis wasn't capable of detecting and shooting down the very low-tech drone weapons that the Yemenis were using to attack Saudi oil facilities. So this is apparently the most advanced system that the Americans have got, so advanced that they don't want to provide it to the Ukrainians, probably because they fear it'll either get blown up very quickly by the Russians, either or it'll be seen as a escalation by the Russians. I don't quite buy that as an explanation. Or, bigger fear perhaps, that some corrupt elements within the Ukrainian government, i.e. most of it, take some of it and sell it. And we know from previous accounts of uh, Russian uh, purchasing of Western equipment that some of these things are just sold by Ukrainians to the Russians directly, which is how they get hold of some of the West, advanced Western weaponry early on in the war. People in the Ukrainian government and military were selling it to them. So perhaps the Americans fear that they, if they transfer this most advanced system, at least one um, element of it will go missing and end up in Moscow being reverse engineered by the Russians. What they are providing instead is something called the Hawk system, air defense system, which dates back to the Vietnam era. It has apparently been modernized extensively, but still they're refusing to give the Ukrainians the most advanced uh, air defense system that they have. But as I said, even that shouldn't be regarded as top-of-the-line stuff if the Yemenis could get past it with some fairly low-tech low drone missiles. Other things that have emerged, uh, there was a CBS story about uh, the 101st Airborne where some of its commanders were quoted in a way that made it look as if they were mouthing off and saying that they were prepared to deploy to Ukraine. The uh, White House issued a statement yesterday saying that that wasn't the case. And some further investigation of how many of them are actually deployed to Romania, which is where the 101st Airborne is doing its training exercises at the moment, seems to suggest that there aren't actually an awful lot of them there. The numbers that have been confirmed there by the various different tracked flights of military aircraft throughout Eastern Europe, 2,400 of these men are confirmed to be in Romania on manoeuvres, and they've been travelling around uh, most of Eastern Europe, including places like Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, and other places, for most of the rest of this year. And the unconfirmed report is that there are 4,700 members there. That's what CBS reported, but that's not confirmed. And so it seems that what you've got there is a standard exercise of limited numbers of this unit that isn't anywhere near enough to go and take on the Russian forces in, in Ukraine or southwest Russia, even before the, the full mobilization has taken place. What you've got there is the same that practice that you've seen in Poland and elsewhere where the Americans have made high-profile deployments, but they're not deployments that can actually be 
mobilized and turned into an immediate invasion force. I discussed on the program back in March and April of this year that a lot of what the Americans were doing was high-profile deployments of troops into Poland and other areas, which were designed to make it look as if they might do something, but aren't actually there to do anything other than um, stop the Poles going too crazy uh, by giving them a sense of security. Because there was never any Russian intention of invading NATO territory, and the American intelligence services know that very well. And there was never any intention even of the war going this long. Maybe they didn't quite know that at the time, but certainly the deployment of American forces, according to uh, some Russian observers and also according to uh, Colonel McGregor and uh, Scott Ritter, isn't anywhere near enough to be able to actually actively intervene in Ukraine at short notice. And it will probably remain that way because, as I've said before, what this comes down to is the fact that the Americans, as things stand, don't want to get involved in a shooting war with the Russians, and I'll come to the dirty bomb story later on, and will only go into Ukraine if they have some sort of tacit agreement from the Russians that they don't get into a shooting war with each other. And they will say, as they said to the Poles back over the whole um, uh, buffer zone thing in May and June this year, that they will not back them if they want to go crazy and run into Western Ukraine. Um, again, the Americans will only deploy when there's an agreement over demarcation of forces with the Russians, as they have agreements with them in Syria. So the question is, will there be any agreement there? I doubt it. I very much doubt that the Russians will agree to anything like that. Um, perhaps there could have been an agreement over a year ago, but now I don't see it at all. I don't see it's politically possible for the Russian leadership to agree to, for instance, an American force occupying uh, what's considered by the Russian population uh, to be a Russian city like Odessa. I can't see them agreeing to an American force being stuck in there to save the arse of the uh, Banderists who are there. I can't see that at all. So we will see how that develops, but it seems that CBS was over-talking what was actually deployed there and what's actually going on is fairly small-scale maneuvers which are designed really as a PR exercise not as like some serious intention to invade. Furthermore regarding deployments there's a lot of talk and I mentioned this the other day of what's going to go on on the Belarus side of things according to uh, Russian sources uh, including the Russian MOD only 9,000 Russian uh, troops have been deployed so far into Belarus. There's evidence that uh, uh, MIG, Russian MiG fighters are patrolling the skies above uh, Belarus, but also that a certain section of these forces, which, as I said uh, when I was talking about the constitutional arrangements between Russia and Belarus, this is all legal under the treaties signed between the two countries, that a certain part of these 9,000 Russian troops aren't even on the Ukraine border. They're further north, securing the border um, around uh, Lithuania and Poland in case the uh, the mad dogs of the Baltic and the rabid dogs of Warsaw try something. I don't think they will, personally. I think there's no way Lithuania can fight Russia. And I think the only way, way possible way that the Poles would do it was if, again, they were going in with full American backing, which they do not have and most likely will not get, because the Russians aren't invading Poland anytime soon. 
Um, they will secure, I think now they will end up securing practically all of Ukraine in the end uh, and go and then they have no intention of starting a war with NATO. And by the way, though, the idea, as I've said repeatedly before, that NATO countries other than the United States could fight Russia is ridiculous. And the reason is what you see now is that the Russians are forming or starting the process of forming a war-style command economy inside their country. The NATO countries can do no such thing. Even the United States would struggle to do it at this stage because the capitalist class in the United States just might be enjoying uh, the profits that are reaped from this war, but I don't think that they would have any intention of allowing the US federal government to assume a command economy type role, a, a Roosevelt type role at this stage. The American capitalist class just don't want it. And I don't think there'll be any move to do that. Now, none of the European countries have the capacity to switch over to a war economy. Germany, as is being made painfully clear at the moment, was entirely dependent upon or largely dependent upon Russian gas for a lot of its industrial capacity. And that will certainly get sealed off if they try and do any kind of serious war against the Russians and hasn't found a viable alternative. They can't depend upon US uh, liquefied natural gas. France, same problem, don't have the energy to sustain a war economy. 70, 80 years ago, back in the time of World War II, if we look at how the Nazis powered uh, their economy, of course, they did it via a lot of resources they pilfered from all the way across Europe. But in building up their war economy prior to 1939, they, what they did was, via the crushing of the working class and the destruction of working class political and industrial organization, they hyper-exploited the German working class to uh, be able to maximize the potential of German coal mines and therefore German uh, coal, steel, and iron production, and therefore were able to revitalize the German war industries using a lot of domestic production to do so. But of course, they still needed to import a lot of stuff from places like Sweden. Uh, for instance, uh, they imported, I believe, a lot of copper through Sweden in uh, World War, all the way through World War II. Uh, Swedes have never really answered for that one. But the reason why I make that point is that all of these countries in Europe had a much more extensive primary and secondary industrial sectors uh, in the 1930s and 40s. In Britain did, France did, all these countries had coal mines, all of them had extensive steel, domestic steel industries, all of them had very well developed war industries that could be supplied, not exclusively, but very much largely from domestically produced materials. Though, of course, Britain had the entire empire to draw from back then as well. And the French had their colonial territories too. Uh, but they had an extensive extensive uh, industrial base that could be mobilized even when these countries were in relatively weakened states after the depression in the very beginnings of world war ii none of that exists now what you have now in britain you have um, certain areas of the country which are doing like defense and war material production there's various plants up in central lancashire there's some in derby there's a few more dotted around the place but these are small scale production facilities they're not huge uh, tank plants like the russians have we just don't have the capacity to build any of this stuff anymore so when people start talking about oh nato's going to war uh, with russia well with what is my answer to that question other unless they are going to do some dramatic attempt at reindustrializing, and even then it would take years 
for the British economy to be turned around and turned into something that would be capable of sustaining some kind of massive war industry that would sustain a war against the Russians. British capitalism is not that powerful anymore. And Rishi Sunak, who I'll come to in a minute, has made it abundantly clear that he has no plans to engage in that kind of activity either. When he was chancellor, he wanted more defence cuts. He'll probably insist on the same thing to the chagrin of the defence chiefs this time around, who will be desperate to big up the war with Russia to justify an enhanced budget for themselves. They'll end up with more cuts. So when people say, what is NATO going to do? Well, NATO's not capable of very much anymore. Especially now you, not now you have a Russia which is moving towards a war economy footing and taking a uh, state control over more and more industrial sectors. And NATO is just not capable of matching that. Even the United States is not going to be capable of matching that because the political will is not there. There's a will there to sacrifice all of Ukraine. That's certainly there. There's no will there, though, to make the fundamental restructuring uh, that would be required in the U.S. economy to actually go on to some kind of war footing. And you can see, even now, uh, the Pentagon is, is tacitly admitting that they are running out of war material to send Ukraine to keep up with the pace even the relatively slow pace that uh, the war has been going so far would take a huge upsurge in production which doesn't show any signs of coming online anytime soon and that's before the russians start the war in earnest uh, in a few weeks time so bear that in mind next time anybody starts talking about nato going to war um in my view, just not capable. Now, speaking of uh, incapabilities, this leads us to the dirty bomb story. I mentioned this yesterday and the flurry of phone calls that passed between the various different defense ministers and the Russian defense minister. And, of course, the calls between the Russian chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, and his equivalents in uh, Britain and the United States. Now, what seems to have happened is that there's been more call-arounds today, the State Department of the United States under the uh, failed uh, rock star Tony Blinken said that the uh, uh, Russians were basically lying, that it was them that was uh, going to be prepared to deploy nukes in Ukraine, and that this was all uh, made up by the Russians. In reality, I think what happened was that the Ukrainians were probably told by the Department of Defense in Washington if you're doing this, don't do it, and this is an incredibly bad idea. We will not back you if you do. And to back that up, there is an IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, team being sent in to Kiev to assess the Russian claims by apparently carrying out an inspection of the um, Atomic Research Energy there, Research Institute there, and to look into whether this claim of a dirty bomb is true or not. Now, this is being done basically so that the IAEA can come back and say there's no truth to this at all. So the reality is, though, that there was at least some serious conversations about it. Whether the project progressed beyond some mad Ukrainians saying maybe we should do this and some equally mad British intelligence operatives going, yeah, that's a really good idea. Who knows? Uh, the Russians are going to present their case at the UN Security Council later this week. They have also accused the Americans and the Ukrainians of violating the Convention on the Prohibition of Biological Weapons. And so this goes back to the story much earlier in the year about the uh, Americans running biological warfare laboratories in Ukraine. Now, that is a story that's been confirmed. But they're going to talk about that, and they're going to talk about this dirty bomb claim at the Security Council. 
I imagine the Americans will deny everything, the Ukrainians will deny everything, and then this will be quietly forgotten within a week. There was an interesting article on this, though, by the former UN weapons inspector and former Marine Corps intelligence officer Scott Ritter, writing for Consortium News, where he outlined some of the history of uh, so-called dirty bombs. Uh, I didn't realize this, but Ritter says that there was two of these devices that were actually planted in Russia in the mid to late 90s by Chechen separatists, and that they'd somehow got hold of a bunch of uh, radioactive material and uh, put it into what I described yesterday, which is these encased it in explosive material and were prepared to blow it up. Both of these devices were found by the Russian forces and defused. So these are devices that have been planted on Russian territory before, which might explain a little bit about why they reacted to this so quickly. They've actually experienced it, unlike us in the West, who got paranoid about it when we thought bin Laden was going to do it, not that he ever was, and then but was never experienced or never experienced other than through media scare stories. The history of these dirty bombs, as Ritter outlines it, um, mainly centers around experiments that the Saddam Hussein government did in Iraq in the 80s, where they planned to build some of these and drop them on the advancing Iranian troops. And uh, even the Iraqi government, which was desperately looking for ways to carry out the mass killing of, U of Iranian soldiers, uh, given that they were badly losing the war and continued to do so until the U.S., more dramatically intervened um, with the shooting down of an Iranian airliner, which was done deliberately. Uh, look up the USS Vincennes incident if you don't believe me. But they were looking for ways to kill Iranians on a mass scale. And they used poison gas, which of course was supplied to them by the West. But they were also looking to use these dirty bombs to irradiate huge areas. And what uh, Scott Ritter says in the article is that these projects were abandoned by the Iraqis because the uh, these devices were tested and they proved to be militarily useless they did spread radiation over a wide area but they didn't really have much military impact in terms of the mass casualty events that the Iraqis were looking for apparently the Israelis have also tested them extensively as well so keep an eye on that angle but he seemed to be of the opinion that this was basically a story that was a plan that the Ukrainians were playing with, the Russians got hold, uh, hold of it and then raised hell about it so that if anything does happen, they've already been on record as warning the Western powers that this is something which might happen and stating that it was basically on them to rein in their attack dog in Ukraine. And it's looking like that that is what is happening, even though, of course, everybody's denying that any such plot ever existed. Uh, we'll wait for them to see what the IAEA says. I anticipate they'll come back and say that there's no truth to it. But what the actual reality is, who knows? Maybe we'll get the full story when this war's over. Certainly, it seems that the Russians taking prompt action squashed whatever plot was developing there. And we'll see if any British intelligence officials suddenly retire uh, on a full pension very soon. In other news, there are reports coming from Iran that two senior officers from the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps have been assassinated. And these were apparently two senior officers who were responsible for missile development. And given the accusations that have flown around recently about the uh, Iranian government providing uh, the Russians with drone technology and surface-to-surface -surface missiles, claims, by the way, that both the Russians and the Iranians have denied, and denied most strongly, but... These are claims that the Americans and other Western powers keep making. 
and then these two guys get apparently assassinated today now who would do it obvious answer is probably the israelis um we can say that with some confidence because the israelis have been fighting a shadow war with the iranians for a long long time uh, they have been known to assassinate scientists associated with the iranian nuclear program they are known to carry out acts of sabotage and bomb attacks inside iran and so this kind of thing is exactly the sort of uh, thing that the israelis would do it's also more convenient for the americans to have the israelis do it that way they can stay one step removed but of course if such an action was taken by israel i would bet every penny i've got that the u.s was fully informed and fully aware of what was going on and uh, they were probably had some hand somewhere in the planning stages but it would be the israelis themselves that carry it out of course the killing of these two men will undoubtedly be disruptive to the operation of this particular section of the irgc but the israelis have killed plenty of men beforehand in the various positions within the iranian civilian structures and military and it hasn't disrupted the development of their military technology so i doubt that this will either but it shows the um the shadow war that the israelis have been engaging in for a very long time and i have no doubt that the iranians will prepare a response for the israelis at some point very soon how that emerges only time will tell final story of the day though i bring us right back to merry old england it's the rishi sunak cabinet which looks an awful lot like a combination of the boris johnson and the liz trust cabinet so no new stories here even uh, revolting creatures like michael gove have crawled back out of the swamp and back around the cabinet table it is essentially the continuity conservative government a string of frauds and utter crooks who have run the country since 2010 and have very successfully run the whole place into the ground i mean it was pretty far in the ground already to be completely honest but it's essentially a continuity regime it's a regime that will adopt the very policies i was talking about yesterday which is it'll be a government by bondholder its main task will be maintaining the british government's uh, credibility which means the the uh, credibility of british government bonds uh, its main task will be to make sure that asset prices remain as high as possible that the housing bubble doesn't collapse and that of course the pound is restored to a decent level against the dollar now that'll be their main tasks they'll go about it in the same way that cameron did which will be uh, more cutbacks in the public sector more privatizations if they can find anything left to sell off to like g4s or any other companies that are usually have very extensive links with the conservative party and of course more uh, attacks on the working class in the form of bans on strikes and things like that so it is a complete continuity regime there is not even the slightest deviation going to be allowed it will be essentially a regime that is trying to stay in power just till 2024 sunak will seek to be as anonymous as possible um, he will seek to run a boring government and hope to be able to stay in power for two years with the aim that the tories are probably going to lose in 2024 but they don't, don't lose to buy as many seats as they would if they were to hold an election in the next few weeks it is a government of no ambition and he signaled straight away that he's the man who's going to keep up the policy with regard to ukraine because of course he does there's no uh, possibility of uh, independent thought inside the british government of course nor the british opposition who famously uh, kowtowed to the uh, the war machine and 
when the early part of the war was just starting out. There was a brief attempt by some on the Labour left to sign a woolly-minded pacifist letter of protest calling for peace. Keir Starmer threatened them all with disciplinary action and they all withdrew their signatures from it and all promised not to criticise NATO in the future. That's your bold socialist radicals right there. They are almost as bold, almost, as the incredible collection of Che Guevara-esque radicals in the Democratic Party, mostly associated with the Democratic Socialists of America, who released a letter earlier today calling on the Biden administration to engage in negotiations with the Russians over Ukraine. They couched this in a lot of neocon talking points, saying that assistance to Ukraine should continue. Biden administration should be applauded for standing by Ukraine. But Putin's a madman and he's losing and therefore he's probably going to nuke us. So therefore we should negotiate. In other words, it's exactly the kind of uh, cowardly maneuver you would expect from a bunch of social Democrats facing a bad election. And especially when people have started to turn up and started protesting against uh, Ocasio-Cortez and have been making her life awkward. So they released this just before the midterms to say to their constituents who might be raising questions that, oh, well, we've we've raised questions with the Biden administration. We've called for negotiations. But even the mealy mouth words of Pramila Jayapal, AOC and others were too much for the Biden administration, who immediately denounced the letter. And therefore, Jayapal said it had been released by accident by unknown aides and therefore had to be withdrawn. Their rebellion lasted less than 24 hours, ladies and gentlemen. Truly the most pathetic attempt at a political revolt the world has ever seen. And they couldn't even stick by the basic statement which was couched in all kinds of um, aggressive imperialist talking points that the Biden administration should negotiate. They couldn't even stand by that. So that's your democratic socialists of America, everybody crumble like meringues when faced with even the demented rage of Joe Biden. So, good luck finding an anti-war candidate in America. You may need to vote for Rand Paul. That brings me to the end of today's update. Uh, Thank you for listening. I'll be back with more of this again tomorrow, so I hope you will join me again for that. i